What's up, everybody? Welcome, welcome to the Artists and Data Science Happy Hour. Very special, special Happy Hour indeed. It is the two-year anniversary of the podcast. Two years ago, on April eighth, two thousand twenty, we released the first batch of episodes. Uh, I think it was like twelve episodes all at once, and uh, just I think was one of the first in that uh, cohort of episodes. Uh, damn, I feel like so long ago, man. Uh, and here we are, two years later. What are the stats? What have we done in two years? Uh, well, about 158,000 downloads. That's, you know, not too bad. Just coming in on streams. Uh, this month was actually the biggest download month. I don't know what was happening, but I had 25,000 downloads in one month, just this month. Uh, last last month was like 12,000. The month before that was 7,000. So it's like, this is going up, man. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. 237 published episodes, 268 hours of published content and 76 happy hour sessions. God damn, man, that was crazy. Thank you all so much for, for being here. Uh, two years, man, didn't even know if I would last two months, didn't know if I would lose motivation, but all y'all have been here. Vin, Ken, Tom, Serge, Russell, Auntie Patrice, and everybody listening at home, man, if it wasn't for y'all, I probably would not have gone on for this long. So thank y'all so much for being part of the Artists of Data Science Two years, man. Two years. That's awesome. Uh, hopefully, you get a chance to tune into the episode that was released today. It was with, uh, uh, it was all about creativity, and it was Natalie Nixon. The episode that we did, uh, she wrote a book called Creativity Leap. And uh, that was actually an episode that was live streamed a few months ago. So if you're looking on YouTube for the video, uh, it like it, it's, it was a previously live streamed video. So go ahead and check that out. Um, but yeah, it was released today on the podcast. So hopefully I'll get a chance to tune into that. Uh, but yeah, thank y'all for being here so much. Two years, man. Two years ago. I'm curious, what was life life for you like two years ago? Let's start with Kenji. Two years ago, uh, what were you up to? And you know, if you reflect back on on those last two years, Ken, uh, have you done everything that you wanted to get done? I don't know if I did everything that I wanted to get done, but I did a whole lot of stuff that I didn't even realize that I wanted to do. And then sort of, you know, it worked out. I, I'm really happy with how the last two years have gone. Um, I think around two years ago, or like just before two years ago, I'd, I'd quit a job that I wasn't really liking to pursue a significantly higher risk uh, job and career. And there's a lot of question marks, you know, like there was not as much financial security. I started a lot of student loan debt, which I guess I still kind of do. Um, but, you know, there are some, a lot of incredible things that happened. One of them, namely being a, a part of communities like this, you know, meeting so many people, which inevitably led to friendships, which also inevitably led to, led to opportunities, um, both professionally and personally. And I couldn't be more grateful. And you know, I think that's one of the, the major things that we share is our, our love and value for just community creation in, in general and, and just building something that's, that's bigger than ourselves. I couldn't agree more. Ken, thank you so much. Uh, shout out to Patrice Johnson and Stephanie Ireland in the buildings. Uh, you guys haven't seen you be here before, but I'm so happy you are here. Uh, would you guys mind sharing two years ago what you've been up to compared to now? Uh, let's go to Auntie and then maybe Patrice or, or Stephanie if you guys want to jump in. But yeah, tell me what, what was life like two years ago compared to today? Yeah, uh, everything's changed. I was barely starting uh, the whole journey into data two years back. So I don't know, 
and you're still on that journey. It's a lifelong journey, man. You, uh, yeah, never, never quite, never quite reach a destination here. Tom, let's hear from you. Then let's go to Ben. Let's go to Sir. Let's go to Russell. By the way, all y'all joining me, if you got questions, go ahead and drop them in the uh, comment section or here in the chat. I will add you to the queue. Uh, more than happy to take your questions. Sure. Um, so I'm not sure you heard of it, <clears throat> but this little pandemic named COVID hit the world and it forced me to go online more, which I was already trying to do. And I got shocked by how many people wanted to be mentored by me. And after a while, I just said, okay, I'm going to accept this. And um, that got me closer to Danny Ma and <clears throat> this super look, good-looking Indian guy that was raised in the States na named Harpreet Sahoda, who gives to our community more than anyone I've met. Honestly, Harpreet, I'm not just saying this because it's your second anniversary show. Everybody sees me praising you a lot with the Chris Evans torch image. But seriously, the amount of research you do for each Artists of Data Science episode, how hard you work, um, I think I work hard. No, just remember Harpreet. He works harder. But then uh, <clears throat> just getting more and more involved on LinkedIn and getting to know amazing people like Serge and Ben and Ken. And I could keep going, making great friends like Russell and Dare and Auntie. Uh, it's been quite a ride. In other words, I don't have office friends anymore, except my dogs, which have been my best office mates to date. But now I have friends all over the world and people that call me dad from all over the world. It's been amazing. And I, I hate that it was COVID that made that happen. But in a way, thank you, COVID. Tom, thank you so much, man. I no, appreciate that. Appreciate the kind words very much so. Uh, yeah, I think the happy hour sessions would have like taken off the way they did if it wasn't for like that, that COVID wave. Like, for a while, we had like, what, like 50 people showing up every single week. They're getting crazy. Uh, and I think a lot of that had to do with pandemic. Absolutely agree with you uh, in, in terms of making friends from all over, many of which I'll be running into in a couple of weeks at ODSC uh, in Boston, ODSC East. So if you guys are going to be there, uh, definitely look for me at the Pachyderm booth. I'll be giving out stickers and socks and all that stuff. And I'm looking forward to Ken's keynote address and looking forward to Serge's speak. Uh, sorry, Serge's uh, talk, not speak. I'm looking forward to him speaking. Uh, also, who is it? Keith uh, is going to be there as well. It's going to be great, man. It's going to be a lot of a lot of great uh, speakers. So if you're going to be there, look for me. Vin, what was going on two years ago, man? By the way, if you guys got questions, please do let me know. I'll, I'll be adding you to the queue. Yeah, it was COVID. And uh, look, my daughter was right back there. That, you know, that was all of a sudden her desk showed up and she started working right behind me and I think hated every minute of it. Maybe not every minute, but I'd say like 90% of the minutes, but that's what I remember is just having her back there and her and I just kind of sharing an office for three months. And it was, you know, it was kind of awesome for me just, and like I said, that's two years ago. That's what I remember the most is, you know, for once I, cause I've been working in this office by myself for 10 years now and having an actual office mate for that long was like the first time I'd had anybody in the office with me for that long continuously in that whole 10 years. I'd go on site for a week at a time. But 
yeah, it, it really strange times, but how you've kept this going and, you know, built up a bigger and bigger community and the people that you bring in here, some of the knowledge that you bring, it's kind of amazing. I mean, two years, it, it feels like it's been longer than that because you keep, like I said, you keep getting these guests. Like when you got Eddie Duke, I was like, what the, how, how did you do that? You're my idol. You know, you've been doing some amazing work. I got to say, I got to hand it to you. It really impressive. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, I had, a, I had some crazy guests on the show, man. Annie Duke, Scott Young, Robert Green, James Altucher. Uh, I'm sure there's many, many more I'm missing in there. Uh, uh, yeah, a lot. Uh, can't even remember them all. But yeah, dude, two years ago, dude, like, the, the direction my career has taken, it's been interesting. Two years ago, I thought I wanted to be director of data science or chief data scientist or something along that path. Uh, that's like very much where my headspace was at. Now I'm like, dude, like I don't want to manage people. Like don't want, don't want that type of role whatsoever. And now I found myself in a type of role where it's actually like I'm a professional content creator and community person. Like this is my full-time job is I write blogs. I talk to people. I create tutorials. I write examples, code examples. I'm on social media. Like, this is an actual job that people pay me a lot of money for. Like that's insane to me. Um, two years, man. Who knows how much changes in two years? Uh, Patrice, let's let's uh, let's, let's hear from you, if you don't mind. Um, I want to say thank you for. I, I was trying to find it to stick it in the chat here, and I couldn't do that quickly. But you wrote a post earlier this week, um, listing out all the people you learned from on LinkedIn. And I love it when people do things like that because I'm back like probably before where you were when you wrote that post about how you joined LinkedIn and then found all these people who knew more about things related to data science than you did and found them to follow. Um, and that's exactly my story, except I would say I'm starting at like a few pre-beginner pre steps before you, <laughs> but I do love that I've found people who are happy to share what they know and connect with others. And I, um, I also wanna say thank you to Tom because you were the, one of the first people I saw do that. You were interviewed by Sarah, please help me with her last name. All I remember without looking it up is that it starts with H and it's long. Sarah somebody. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, she officially goes by Sarah somebody now because nobody can pronounce that name, but um, I think she's soon to be married. So let's just call her Sarah the Geek. Okay. <laughs> Sarah, who interviewed you. And I, it was um, like, uh, I think for people who are starting out, um, it's very easy to see people who have done a ton as inaccessible, they must not have time, they must not be interested. But watching the interview that you did with her, it was videoed and then I, and then she posted it to LinkedIn. So I saw it um, at some point after that, that conversation was so real and interesting. And um, I appreciate, it, it was one of the first um, places where I saw, wow, there's a lot of people who know a lot, who are willing to share what they know. and enjoy talking with other people who either do what they do or want to learn how to do what they do. So Patrice, I want to share 
a secret with you, Harpreet and Vin and Sturge, they're all going to back me up on this. The secret to knowing more in this field is giving away what you know in this field, because then people want to give back to you what they know in this field. In fact, Dare George and I were having a long talk last night, and I had to really work hard, Patrice, to convince him. Now, Dare, in the future, I'm going to need your help. And he was having trouble imagining that he would be able to help me. And Vin, back me up here. It's going to be a matter of at most two or three years where he's going to know something I don't, and he'll be able to help me with something I haven't covered. Because it's not only growing fast vertically, but it's also broadening all that we do. So unless we focus on concepts, it's super hard to keep up with everything. But just keep giving it away, Patrice. That, and it makes you understand it better when you give it away, too. I love that. But I have one more question, maybe for everybody, if other people as have thoughts on this throughout this session. I am a, a transplant into anything at all STEM related from English. <laughs> and I think um, that I've been wondering things like, is this a is this a STEM field thing? Is this a, um, a timing thing? Because the first time I went to school was many, many years ago. I I'm experiencing for the first time an environment where people are like, don't share what you know, keep it like, don't talk with others, don't like, don't do study groups, don't. And I'm like, I don't understand this world. Where did it come from? Because I, it's not the way I think of education at all, but I don't think that it's, that experience is rare. I think there are a lot of um, institutions where that's become a thing or maybe it's always been a thing I wouldn't know because I don't come from <laughs> math or science um but I it's a it's a thing I'm curious about if other people have comments or thoughts I think Makiko might be able to speak to, to that part about coming into the field from like a non-stem-ish background and if you want to attack the other half of that question and if anybody else wants to chime in please go ahead and just like Use raise hand icon, I'll add you to the queue. And if anybody else has questions that's watching on LinkedIn or on YouTube or here in the room, let me know. I'll go ahead and add you to the queue. Okay, so I only caught part of it because I was a bad student, like always. <laughs> um, but in terms of people sharing information in STEM and especially data science and machine learning, what I find is that I feel it's more a hallmarker of domains or disciplines where people have a kind of like a huge stake to some degree in hiding behind like an ivory tower. Like what I mean by that is, um, and once again, like I only caught part of the part of the question, right? So for example, like I found that there are pockets of engineering, um, like web engineering, you know, web dev, mobile where I can talk to people and they are really, really happy to share information. And to some degree, I've also known that those are areas where you don't have like a high degree of pedigreed people. So people who went through a PhD or master's program. And what I found is that a lot of the people who come from like, who kind of had a self-teach, they tend to be a lot more willing to open up and share because they understand like how hard that struggle was. Whereas like, I think data science, data science and machine learning, I think it's, it's only, I think now we're seeing a lot of people from non-traditional backgrounds start to really kind of penetrate that area. And so you're gonna see that 
open up more. But I think part of it too is also the fact that if you're a person who feels like your value is based in scarcity, then you you don't have an incentive to like share your knowledge and to help out the people around you. Whereas if you're someone who believes you grow more by sharing and exchanging, um, then you're you're going to be really happy to you know help people. Because <laughs> I've worked with like staff and like principal engineers who felt very unapproachable, and I've worked with other staff and principal engineers or data scientists who are like, yeah, yeah, like let me go debug this really stupid bug that you included in your code because you weren't paying attention, and they're just happy to do that, and they're happy to point out links. So I think, you know, there, there are definitely like pockets of people who are in that scarcity mindset of like, I need to protect my turf and mm -hmm. I need to do that by gatekeeping. But I think the cool thing about people here is that no one here is like that. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I think you can, there, you can find your tribe, you can find your like group of people. Sometimes, uh, you know, you go to a company and that culture is very much about learning and developing and, and they will show you that by the amount of educational opportunities they offer you. Um, maybe for example, they have internal classes that you can do. Maybe, you know, they're very happy to do hackathons, right? Um, but sometimes the company culture won't be there and you can kind of take that as an opportunity to kind of like build that tribe around you. And that's something that like I have personally, that's my been, that's been my approach. I either find really cool people. I shortcut it by like just hanging out with people Harpreet knows because whoever Harpreet knows is pretty cool. <laughs> so I shortcut it that way. Um, or you can kind of sometimes do the unfortunately kind of hard work of like building that culture where you are locally, even in small ways. Like if you see a hackathon, you can just be like, hey, bud, I know you like your Fridays, but how do you feel like spending the weekend with me on a hackathon for great expectations or something like that? Yeah. Um, or even starting a book club or stuff like that, right? So, you know, definitely there, there's hope for sure. I actually just found a class where like, somebody asked like, is this gonna be a place where like, we start talking about plagiarism and we're really careful not to share anything with each other. And this, the instructor went, no, no, no. <laughs> Everything is gonna get turned on in on CoLab because the point is everybody's here to learn from each other including me from you. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> there are like classes in this discipline that work like this. Um, so that was really exciting to see. Um, but I, yeah, I, so yeah, thank you for sharing your perspective on that. And also, can I toss one more question into the poll? <laughs> um, I'm, I, I would love to hear from anyone who would like to share what their, what a best Python learning opportunity they've had is. Awesome. Let's go to Costa uh, and then Ken. I think they're touching on the earlier parts of your question. Uh, and then if anybody wants to, uh, Let's go ahead and, and, and turn, in terms of the Python learning opportunity thing, let's go ahead and just answer that question in the chat. So Patrice, keep an eye out for that. Uh, and, and then yeah, if nobody else has a question, we'll circle back to that one. Costa, let's hear from you. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things I found, uh, I studied uh, engineering and computer science at the same time, right? So one of the strange things that I found was uh, they kind of operate on very different wavelengths. Uh, at least it did at Sydney University, right? Now, the you'd have the same systems, right? Like a, 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 class, um, a class forum of sorts, right? But 
on the engineering side, no one would touch it. Mechanical engineering subjects, electronics, like robotics, no one would touch it. It was all about you're in the lab, you're working on something, you you know look over your shoulder and talk to the guy sitting next to you or the girl sitting next to you and ask them, hey, uh, how'd you get that to work, right? And it was very collaborative and very, um, uh, you know, uh, very verbal. On the other hand, you you look at the computer science side, and if I tried to do that in a computer science lesson, they would just not answer me and just tell me, hey, go check the forums, right? So they were very forum-based in terms of how they shared knowledge and how they asked for information across each other. So I, I did find the different, like, classes and different subjects had different um, personalities among them, and I'm not sure what the root cause was for that, but basically all the engineering subjects ignored um, ignored anything to do with forums and all the computer science subjects ignored anything to do with interpersonal collaboration were just all on the forums. Um, and I think that'll vary from school to school, country to country, um, you know, communication style. So I think you're going to see a fair chunk of variation there. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my two cents on it. It was just a weird experience for me transitioning because I, I naturally fit in more with the engineering side because I'll just, you know, voice up and ask a question to anyone who's around me working on the same problems, right? Um, so, yeah, I think we're all going to have different comfort zones. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Ken, let's hear from you. Then after Ken, we'll go to Serge. Uh, if anybody has a question, go ahead, let me know in the uh, chat in the comment section. Uh, but if nobody has a question, we'll circle back to Stephanie's, uh, sorry, Stephanie, Patrice's second question. Yeah, I would argue that most disciplines are moving more towards a collaborative or open nature. I mean, I came before studying computer science, before studying any of these things from like a business background. And my interest in business was in entrepreneurship, but most universities or places don't teach entrepreneurship classes. And one of the biggest things that I found from the business classes is they're like, oh, you have to create this competitive advantage and you have to protect it. Right. And when I started doing my own version of entrepreneurship when I started going out and, and like actually like exploring what the world is like when you're starting your own business, it's actually kind of the opposite. You have to like build something, get feedback, see if it works. You have to share it to vet the idea and see if it's good or not. And I look at this whole domain. I look at all of learning as the way that I can validate if what I'm doing is correct is I have to put it out into the world and I have to, to share it. And to be honest, if, if I do that, like the odds of me getting funding for that idea go up. The odds of any of these other things go up uh, that are in line with me producing that or, or making it a reality. The more I hide my ideas or the more I keep them to myself, the less likely they are to happen because I probably won't have access to the resources. I'm not that smart. I'm pretty sure if I have a good idea, someone else has had it. And the battle is really getting to execution. So who does it first? rather than who had the idea first, because I don't think that there are very many super original ideas out there. Um, and that's a, a long way to say is I personally seek out communities. I personally um, probably overshare about a lot of the things that I'm working on, because honestly, if someone takes what I did and they do it better than I did, then something that I wanted to be in the world is already in the world and I didn't have to do any work on it, right? So there's there's this kind of unlimited well of good ideas and things that are out there and just reinforcing that and sharing it, I would hope makes the world a better place as long as the things you're working on or the ideas you're sharing are like mutually beneficial for a lot of people. Serge, let's hear from you. 
Yeah, I agree a thousand percent with what Kenya said. Uh, well, I found like in academics, it's like really skewed. Yeah, it gets really competitive. <clears throat> it operates more like under what Mikiko said, uh, more like scarcity. There's more, there's only so many people that can get A's and only so many that can get B's and so on. So of course, everybody's competing. And uh, because of that, like people are, have a tendency to collaborate less, but out in the field is very much different. I think, um, you know, yeah, there is some people with still with that academic mindset. And I found such folks in my company, people that work in R and D that come from a very strong science background. Some of them still have that, you know, like they're trying to control the knowledge that they have, but, um, at least like in the data science area, I found that not to be true. We have uh, my own team. We have like a fun and learn session that we do every couple of weeks that we share like what we've been doing, uh, things that, you know, that practices that we like to share. And like every month, like the greater team, um, uh, hundreds of data scientists spread across many teams in the company. Uh, we have the community of practice meeting where we call it the COP, where we share like um, also things that we're developing across several teams. So it's been a wonderful way to cross pollinate and uh, you know realize what techniques we could use and and uh, you know how they tie in into like the agronomy that you know uh, with you know the domain knowledge that we we're, we're trying to connect with our, those methods. To bring them with so yeah i think it's uh it it you'll you'll find that if if you have you work in a company and they don't have that kind of structure that they don't that they're they're all trying to be gatekeepers that's not a good company to be in and you should probably just run <laughs> um, how do you identify those i i mean i i i a thousand percent agree with that but i i do you have any thoughts on how you tell, like, unless you know someone already who can give you an inside perspective or have a way to, to find a, a, someone who has um, good, good knowledge of what it's like to actually work there, are there other um, indicators, I guess, other things we could look for to, yeah. um, that are signs of it, if a company is one that welcomes questions or, um, and sharing and uh, and that, or is the opposite? Well, you you pretty much you you talk. You have to find a buddy or or several that work in other departments rather than your to get a perspective. You know, find those people, ask them questions of how it is working in that company, um, and then you know you have to be very particular into finding if. The work is very siloed. If you know, you ask if they know other people from other departments, if they know what they're doing, what they're up to, you know, and uh, if there are opportunities to share that information. And by the way they answer that, you might find out if they have a culture of sharing knowledge. Like the company I was in before this one, they were very, very siloed. And uh, um, it wasn't that they were purposely sil siloing themselves. It just was the structure that was there, the way the departments were set up, the, the, the way they were meant to be working on only one thing. And also there was a competitive streak amongst all the people 
in there. And I guess that's just the, the kind of professionals they chose to um, hire. But I mean, that, that cultural stuff is, is stuff that is it's really hard to get to early on unless you kind of ask the right questions to the right people. So just make sure you spread things out, you know, because you might get a different perspective if you ask people in, in completely on the other end of, you know, maybe it doesn't even have to be data scientists. You work, you, you ask people that are engineers or marketers and uh, you'll, you'll get a different perspective. Yeah, thank you. I think that that's definitely a key I'm after is finding the people who believe that being competitive and being the best has everything to do with the way you said, um, a culture of sharing knowledge. Because um, the more you share, the more you know, back to Tom's earlier comment. So thank you. Serge, thank you so much. Serge, you're speaking at ODSC. What's your topic? Adversarial robustness. Adversarial robustness. I'm definitely going to be at that talk. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person as well, man. Uh, yeah, get, get, yeah, same here. Same yeah, here. Get there getting a couple of beers over there at Trillium. By the way, if you are listening and you are going to be at ODSC uh, on April 19th, which is that Tuesday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern time, so will be a bunch of people coming together from uh, the MLOps community, from uh, the other MLOps community, Chief Lens community, and uh, just people on LinkedIn that are invited to get some beers. Do come and join us. It's going to be a good time. Uh, ben, let's hear from you on this topic. Uh, ODSC, not Europe, ODSC East in Boston. Uh, ben, for it. In the topic was the one from is it Patricia on finding cultures that work with maybe re rephrase the topic so I can make sure I hit it. Yeah, on. yeah, Patrice. Can you, uh, uh, how do you, uh, what are um, some things to pay attention to or consider to to help figure out if a if a company is a place that values, I think the best way is not the way I said it, but actually the way that Serge just said it, that values a, a culture of sharing and knowledge. And I would add to that, like sees that as compatible with being highly competitive and doing great work, not as an opposite to that. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I think a lot of the, I agree with a lot of the things that have been said already. I think something you could ask them would be, how do you process bottom-up innovation? versus top down, because some, something that happens when you get people in an industry, they've been very successful for a reason. They get into these silos and they can have an attitude of not listening. And so if, if they can't explain to you how they accept bottom-up innovation, if someone has a good idea, then that might be a red flag if they don't have a process to incorporate that. Because I think what I've learned in industry is everyone can have a brilliant idea. The, the brand new junior, junior person joining the team could have an absolutely brilliant idea that changes changes a feature, changes innovation. And if you don't have a process to accept that, that is very welcoming, then that would be a big red flag. Thank you so much for saying that. You totally just made something click for me. Oh, good. <laughs> so like uh, several years ago, before I had any thoughts of doing data science, um, I won an essay contest from the Japanese Business Society of Detroit to spend 12 days with red carpet treatment in Japan, um, because Japan had this initiative to um, help teachers outside of Japan understand some very particular things about Japanese culture that would help their um, children of employees who go to work overseas adjust better um, and get more out of that experience. And one of the things we, they, they did is in the, in the city of to Toyota, like 
Toyota the company, there's also a city Toyota and we met Mrs. Toyota. Um, and uh, they, they gave us a tour of their factory floor, which has been written about in many books. I know um, Eric Ries, The Lean Startup, that was the first place I heard it, but I, I think that's now a, a quite a famous story. But what surprised me was they, they did this long kind of stop and story to explain that they have a way to stop production when workers on the floor have anything anything that goes wrong and then a whole bunch of people come to problem solve it and there's not like more things piling up um that's um the lean part but then they also did this like deep dive into a story about one worker who who gave them the idea like that came out of um, a worker whose responsibility was to put things inside of the cars. They used, because when you tour their factory floor, the first question that, one of the first questions that comes to mind is why are there no doors on the cars? Because they seem all assembled, except there are no doors on them. That's because the people who have to put things inside of cars used to have to open the doors, then very carefully walk around them slowly to make sure that they weren't scraping like nothing they were carrying or wearing would scrape the paint on the exterior of the doors as they were um, going to the interior to um, install or assemble or, or fix things. So it was taking a lot of time and slowing them down. It was, um, and there, there really was no reason the doors had to be on the cars when they didn't have all of their pieces yet. So, um, they have, uh, and, and throughout Japan, like everywhere we went, every experience you have, you're surveyed about it. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about with, like that would be one method to gather bottom-up ideas is to ask. Because often people will tell you if you ask, and if you don't ask, it makes it seem like you don't care and you might not actually care or it might just not occur to you to ask. But the, I'm like, what? at the time I was like, why is this a big deal that somebody suggested the doors were in the way, <laughs> but now in a different context and when I'm asking different questions, um, I'm thinking, oh, like that's actually a very good example of the values of that company and how they live their values day to day and their, how there are structures built to support those values, which is a very different story than, I mean, any company can have a great tagline and a great list of values but the extent to which they really um, internalize them and um, make it part of, make it a positive and instructional and competitive and learning part of what they do is I, is I, I think what, what at least I, and I think a lot of people really wanna know about a place. And so I, just I, I love that example you, gave, you give because in the traditional, in the negative work culture settings, the people doing the installs that required to open the doors would not have been invited to the meeting because they're not senior enough. They're not important enough and their opinions aren't useful enough. And so I, I think that that is the negative side that we see. Absolutely. So I, yeah, thanks for sharing that example. That's, uh, that's a beautiful example of why, why we need this. Thank you very much, Patrice. Costa, let's hear from you. Yeah, so very interesting experience I had. So um, I, I, when I was at City University, I was um, part of the student, formula student 
uh, motorsport team, right? So we'd all build cars, different universities would get together and we'd do plan trials and endurance runs and things like that, right? It was a massive engineering exercise, loads of fun, right? One of the best learning experiences I ever had because I got to work with people across multiple years at university as well as with different professors who would advise us. But we had, um, I think it was one of the German teams, whoa, sorry about that. Uh, I think we had one of the German teams come across, um, this is probably back in 2015 or 14. Um, and when when we had something go wrong with the car, we pretty much had it um, separated down to like departments. So if there was something wrong with the electronics or the wiring loom or something like that, it would be down to the electronics team who'd come across and have a look at it. Now, in the uh, in their team, what we found was until the car was ready and perfect, if there was something wrong with the car, even if it was just something wrong with the engine tuning, the whole team would essentially be present around the car and taking ownership of the entire problem. Even if you didn't have anything to offer in that moment, just experiencing watching the guys who were experts on the engine work on the engine could give them insights into other parts of how the, how the um, car operated. So it was very interesting to see this whole thing where you literally had 20, 20 people sitting, standing around a car, watching two guys try to fix this thing. Um, and occasionally one of them would pipe up with a different idea, uh, you know, like in terms of how you can potentially program the ECU a little bit differently. Um, and they'd be offering up ideas. So it was, it was just interesting to see that more hive mind kind of thinking. Um, uh, and it's, it's to me at like a corporate level or like a, in a workplace, it's about how efficient that is and how often you use that, knowing when and how to use that to maximum effect is quite powerful. Um, but I think, yeah, there are certain situations where that kind of hive thinking or mob programming situations can be very useful. Um, just yesterday, I found me and a couple of my colleagues, we were, um, we were training plenty of models uh, over and over again for different, um, for different use cases. And basically we were uh, running into similar issues, but just having like an open chat line, uh, like a huddle on Slack where we could just talk verbally uh, we managed to catch each other out on errors before we ran into them because someone else had run into it, uh, you know? So that kind of collaborative thinking kind of uh, seeps across if you're able to execute it intentfully enough. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, see if there's any questions in the queue. Uh, Russell has a question. After two years, wants to know my favorite moment episode the last two years. Uh, Definitely favorite, two favorite episodes I'd say is uh, Robert Green for sure and Jim Juncture. I just th those are like two people that are just huge in my in my, my thinking and huge in that have take up a lot of real estate on my library bookshelf as well. Uh, so it was wild to be able to talk to them, uh, and then also just the, the happy hours. That's definitely one of my absolute favorite times as well. Um, Let's go to, uh, Patricia had another question about learning Python. Let's circle back to that. By the way, if anybody else has questions on YouTube or on uh, LinkedIn, let me know, I'll go ahead and add that question to the queue. Or Mark, the question or comment? I was comment about Python, so I'll wait for the question. Uh, okay, all right, cool. So right after Patrice goes, then we'll go to Mark. Oh, the question was just um, if you have any favorite Python learning opportunities. 
Yeah. So my, my favorite, um, so self pace, I will forever plug dataquest.io. Um, honestly, that's how I learned, uh, Python, um, uh, for myself learned on the train, <laughs> going to my, to my job and operations and, and picked up Python that way. Um, Mikiko said real Python. I reference them all the time, especially their, uh, their classes tutorial. Um, but the, the main thing that really, for me going from, I know how to use Python syntax to, I actually know how to code in Python was actually working in an eng code base and getting code review. And more importantly is that in an eng code base, so typically have this thing called CICD, continuous integration, continuous deployment. And, um, you know, it's probably gonna be hard to get that for your own personal project and maybe uh, open source projects that have that, but the essentially, um, oh, engineering code base, engineering code base, eng. <laughs> um, and essentially is with those tests, they're gonna have a whole bunch of unit tests and linting and all these different features that's gonna force you to write good code. And so a really great example is I, I built one of my first ETL pipelines in production recently and um, an engineer put a new test in, and my think my 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 code kept on failing on this new test. Um, it forced me to understand their code, and it forced me to write even better code um, to to account for some errors. And so that's something that I just couldn't get on my own because it took engineers or people who are more advanced to write these tests, and for me to force me to consider them. And then after that, so say for instance, you know, you maybe you can't work in a production code base just yet, you're still learning. Um, going on GitHub, putting your code up as if it was a real branch, and then asking someone to do code review. I've learned so much from code review. I think that's where I really learned how, how to really do software development. Um, I wouldn't call myself a software developer quite yet, <laughs> um, but, you know, getting those best practices from, a, from someone who actually knew what they're doing, um, just really brought me to the next level and so identifying people and what i've done for friends is like i want my friends to learn how to be a front-end engineer i just reached out to my network i said hey my friend has a branch up um i'll i'll give you some like data advising if you go and uh do code review for my friend and people were happy to do that um so i would greatly greatly encourage getting code review um to really bring your python to the next level thank you i will message you as soon as i'm ready for my first github code review <laughs> Yeah, I'll happily like, do it. In terms of just learning like the language, that's just say from the actual ground up, like from zero, from scratch. Uh, my favorite resource is uh, from Python Principles. I think it's called pythonprinciples.com or pythonprinciples.org. Probably one of the best ways to learn Python. Like you don't have to install it or anything. Everything's down the web browser and you learn syntax from literally like what is a string, what is a, you know, variable type of thing. I actually put my cousin on it and he is in 10th grade and he went through the entire like course and said he absolutely loves it. And I also put another one of my cousins on there, say electrical engineering, and it's like at the end of his bachelor's and he's really enjoying that as well. Uh, so definitely check that out. Um, Ken, let's hear from you and if anybody else wants to jump in on this, let me know. And if anybody else has a question, let me know. I will add you to the queue. Yeah, I'm going to go a, a different angle with Python. So rather than the general learning, you know, like at a high level, I think that there are some cool opportunities right now that are going on to learn specific tools. So uh, my friends over at Streamlit are doing a 30 days of Streamlit challenge 
where every day they have some really, you know, like really in-depth um, tutorial style things that are consistent with how to build a dashboard using that platform. I think looking for what companies are doing or what uh, open source, you know, libraries are doing with their own documentation is really interesting. Like most people are like, oh, I'm not going to go to like python.org or whatever it is, python. I think it's python.org to, to go and, and learn the language. But even on that platform, there's like a really good tutorial for all of the basics, like loops, um, variables, functions, classes, whatever it might be. I think it's really overlooked the people that actually produce these languages or libraries. They kind of have some pretty good stuff out there. So that's something that I know when, whenever I need to brush up, it's like the first place I look to and it, it surprises me a lot. So um, also shamelessly, if you're looking for some, some um, a good data or, or libraries to work through, I did release all of my YouTube data a couple of months ago. And there's some really good examples that people have put together analyzing that for with some some pretty cool visualizations and some other different types of analysis so shameless self-plug shout out to kenji's podcast podcast youtube channel and podcast by the way uh yeah kenji has some great resources on learning data science as well so definitely check that out and uh in terms of like learning how to write code that passes tests i guess uh, there's a course from uh ted petro uh he his platform i think is called dunder data and he had this like essentially like a, a course that costs like 15 bucks and it teaches you how to pretty much build pandas from scratch and it teaches you how to test every little bit of your code so you, you not only learn how to build entire data analysis library but you also learn PyTest as well uh and it's really cool um well worth the 15 bucks that he's charging it i mean i would, I would charge more than that but shout out ted petro um, should respond to my message because you're on the podcast. Uh, Akifa, let's hear from you. Yeah, I would say uh, one thing I would say is that like the types of resources that are useful are useful at different points in one's development. Um, so there is such a thing where like I think, and this is something that like I think I, I, I sort of made the mistake when I was first starting out. Like I tried to learn really advanced stuff before I had the basics down, you know? So I feel like, um, I think in general, it's never gonna hurt to build your own projects. Um, and sometimes the building a project could mean taking existing code, like in an existing project, doing like a code along where maybe for example, you see someone's project, um, and actually, like sometimes the websites for like Streamlit or you know some of these other really popular tools, they'll have like a, they'll have specifically a gallery section of projects. What can be really sort of nice is going to that gallery section, going to the GitHub project that's listed, and like trying to take that one project, deconstruct it, and then essentially do like a different version of it. So they might be doing like a forecasting off of. Oh, I don't know. I was gonna say rain patterns, but um, they could be—they could be doing a forecasting of like stock or something like that, right? Um, but then maybe you read through it, you understand like you know how they're structuring a class object, how they're doing like the training and prediction pipeline, um, and then maybe you instead do something kind of like a similar setup but a different sort of forecasting problem. 
or something like that. But I think like, it, it really kind of depends on where you are in your sort of learning cycle. Like when you're first learning how to code Python, I feel like if you then start throwing in DevOps and you then start throwing in data engineering stuff, it gets really complicated super fast. So I would um, always check in with yourself on kind of like where you are in your process. And that's a little bit hard. So it helps to talk to other people, um, more like senior engineers and all that. Um, and to get check in to see like, what is sort of the bottleneck you need to work on to then progress to the next level. Because I have, I had this huge issue where I was just boiling the ocean on resources. Like I was chasing like every single blog post, LinkedIn article, YouTube video, whatever. And it wasn't helping me be disciplined in the skills kind of I needed to learn. Because essentially once you learn, I have good basics of Python, um, learning pandas, learning NumPy or something like that, it, it, it's relatively like easier than learning Python. Once you learn NumPy and Pan, like Num like NumPy and some of the other libraries, then it gets a little bit easier to understand like how TensorFlow is built, um, things like that. Or even once you know how to write a script, then it becomes the next step of being able to write classes. And then it becomes the next step of being able to write a package. So I would always kind of think like, think minimum viable piece of learning that you kind of need to do to like unblock yourself and then try to develop on top of that. Um, so I feel like I, when I was first starting out, I, I burned a lot of cycles learning stuff that was not supremely useful in the short term. And I'd argue it wasn't useful in the medium term either. <laughs> it became useful long term. Like no knowledge is like wasted in the long term. But, um, you know, if you're trying to get a job or get a raise, uh, some knowledge is not as useful at some some points. So. Yes, yeah. thank you. Thank you for thinking also of efficiency there because there is a lot if you just Google how to learn Python. So I really appreciate all these ideas that are coming from people who have tried a lot of things and used them and shared what they found most valuable. So thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm regularly getting my butt kicked by like all the senior, senior staff, principal engineers around me. It's amazing how little I know <laughs> and how much they're able to find in code reviews. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you very much. Also, shout out to everybody else in the room. Shantai, always good to see you. Uh, Amber, what's going on? David Kepler, Derek, George, Denise, Perio, uh, Marin, and Naresh. What's going on? I'm happy to have all you guys here. And Krishani has a question, so go ahead and uh, and go for it. Looks like a technical question. Haven't had one of those in a while. Uh, go for it, Krishani. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Harpreet. So uh, I have this data set, uh, and uh, the purpose of me solving this problem uh, was not to actually have a deployable model. We just wanted to extract maximum information from this data set. So that was the purpose. Uh, so I went in and I uh, saw. Uh, I went and I used CadBoost for. Uh, because it offers a very good ex model explainability. Uh, the SHAP values that uh, CatBoost offers is really cool. And you can explain how each feature kind of plays and impacts uh, either positively or negatively the response variable. But um, so I was just curious, uh, 
that if there are more models out there uh, that I can use uh, that offer the same degree of model explainability so that I can at least, you know, uh, verify the results that I obtained from the CatBoost model because um, I don't, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, using just one model and trusting it, uh, it kind of feels weird. If I get the same results from another model, kind of uh, proves uh, that there is a really something, you know. Uh, so that is one. Th uh, that is one part of my question. The second is, uh, I have since my work is mostly in my office is on linear data, which is like numerical and categorical. I don't, uh, but in the market, I see there is a lot of NLP requirements. So uh, I would request you to anyone uh, here to like suggest me a good uh, project. Uh, a good idea so that I can get started with. Thank you. Yes, so uh, I just wish there was somebody in, in the room here who wrote a book on explainable AI. And also, I wish there's someone here that wrote a book on language models. That would, that would be so helpful right now. Right, Serge? <laughs> Actually, to, to, I, yeah. I read the book. I'm currently yeah. in the middle of it. Uh, ah. That's that's not mine though. <laughs> no, it's not. Dennis is not here, is he? No, he's not. No, no, no. no, no. So, so let's do this. So, Serge actually also wrote a, wrote a book about explainable AI. Then after that, Omar, if you have anything to add from your learnings of that book, I'd love to hear from you uh, as well. And then Krishan, then we'll circle back to that second question about NLP. Uh, but Serge, go for it. Yeah, you can um, definitely. The way to go is to try different models, not just CatBoost. I, I realize why you chose CatBoost, but uh, it can be any other ensemble um, um, decision tree as well. I I try even, you know, it, it might sound ridiculous, but you can try also logistic regression or linear regression. Um, you can gain some insights from those as well. Um, you can throw SVM on it, LDA. Um, it really depends on what kind of problem it is, what kind of models you would throw at it. Um, you can use SHAP on any model. Uh, you can try uh, the, the, the method that the CatBoost already has integrated use, uses what's called a tree explainer. Um, it, it's very quick, but it, has, uh, it cuts a few corners. So if you want the highest fidelity, you can try the kernel explainer, one of the other explainers, which is the true, truly model agnostic one. Um, it's a lot slower, but it will give you greater, greater fidelity if that's what you're looking for. Um, and it does help to compare the different models. Another thing that does help, but it might be, you know, not as computationally plausible in your case, if you have hundreds of features is, is, is try interaction shap um, which is a good way to see how the different um, features are interacting with each other so um, generally it's a good idea to do some feature selection um, unless you think there's some value in a lot of the features there um, you know if it's a question of exploring the data what's really the point of exploring all the data if you know 90 percent of the features are worthless you know you know as far as like the predictive uh, capabilities that they they bring. Uh, so I I'd look into that. 
but it, it, it is a good way of kind of getting an understanding, trying cat boost and as you, you did, but then I, I'd probably try feature selection. I try different models and I, I definitely try a different explainer. Um, even if, if you're not using, you don't have to necessarily use SHAP, you could use some of the other methods as well. Um, you can get some understanding from them. Just to recap, uh, you you spoke about kernel explainer and tree explainer and interaction shap. So are these uh, functions all available online? I can just look them up in the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of folks don't know that shap. You you generally by default it will just give you the shap values, but you can also from the tree models and only from the the done. I mean any tree model you can do interaction values as well which is so very useful so interaction. sometimes sometimes yeah i'm sorry i interrupted no 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 i i was actually wanting to know what interaction shap is thank you oh the the, the shap interaction values will show you um a degree of interactions between the the features so much like a correlation plot would do if you're doing like a spearman or pearson's correlation um like you'll you'll get an understanding of how they're interacting. Um, so it's it's purely associational, but it 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 does have a a higher degree of fidelity because it's derived from the model. It's not necessarily from the data, and therefore it's it's not necessarily a, a linear like or a monotonic uh, value. It's it's something that will tell you to what degree they're tying into the target uh, variable. So. Um, that's very useful because sometimes you think a feature is important, but it's only important because it's interacting with another one. So it gets, gets you uh, understanding, okay, this is how they're interacting. And generally you use something like uh, a partial dependence plot to understand that. And SHAP has partial dependence plots as well, which are very useful. And Serge, uh, question for for um, running like feature selection methods. There's so many different methods out there. How do you approach deciding which method to use first? Do you have like your go-to method, um, or does it depend? I, it depends. Sometimes, if if you have a ton of useless values, uh, a useless value, useless features, some of the classics like you know, like you can use something like lasso and you'll just weed them all out, right? Um, but that might be a very simplistic way of looking at it. Um, there, there is a progression that I do. Um, I, I try all those simpler ones first and see what I find, but I also try to validate them with the, most, the more complicated ones. And then I use the set operations within Python to see how they overlap. So like I'll, I'll, I'll try lasso or um, also within uh, uh, sidekick learn, you have um, special variations of lasso um, that use uh, the, the, the big values as well of the models. So you can check if there, you know, if there's some, some value between diff different kinds of models that it's determining with this feature selection. Forget the name of the feature. It's in my book, the feature selection method that I'm discussing that uses Lasso. Uh, but more importantly, it's just what it's simply doing. It's 
iterating through all the different features and uh, using very quickly set lasso to discriminate. So, so did, uh, so, sorry, uh, did you mention a special variation of lasso? Yeah. Um, what is that? Yeah, you're, you kind of put me on the spot here. Select sorry. model. A, there, is, there is within Psychic Learn, which is a very, very, very complete library. Um, yeah, it is called Select from Model. Uh, you go to psychic learn dot feature selection feature you know underscore selection and you find a ton of different features so it has select k best select from model so uh the one i'm discussing is select from model and the model you use is lasso but you can also use a variant of lasso um, which is um, Lasso Lars Ick. Yeah, that's the one. Um, so that uh, one. Lasso Large or Lars? Lasso Lars Ick. So it's, yeah. So it's, yeah. A, it's a Lasso model with Lars, which is another variant uh, using BIC or AIC which are very good for that particular case where they're, 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 they're pretty much checking the goodness of fit using these criterions. <laughs> it's a, it's a long-winded explanation, but um, these BIC and AIC are, you know, very, very famous uh, criterions. Yes. Um, thank you. Thank you, Serge. It was very insightful talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and, and well, I, I, I haven't finished though. Uh, that's, that's the simpler oh, please, one. Please, please, um, please go on, please I, go on. I, I go all the way from that all the way from using perhaps if, if, if you want to be very thorough, there's a bunch of other methods um, that iterate across every single thing, um, every single variant of features kind of trying to discriminate on, you know, they first go, okay, maybe you have 400 features and in every iteration, they're like trying to take away the, 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 the 5% that is kind of on the bottom in terms of importance in your model. So it uses the feature importance of the model. And every time it's just like 5% less, 5% less, 5% less, until it's, it's within a threshold of, of you know, performing well, but not, not necessarily quite as well as it would with a lot of other features. But you know, um, sometimes uh, it's not worth it if it's only in, you know, increasing performance a tiny bit. And then, uh, there are newer methods, like one of my favorites is genetic feature selection. Um, I, I suggest you look into that one too. It's uh, pretty time consuming. Uh, it's very resource intensive, but it's, um, it performs very well. So you'll find, I think the name of the library is genetic algorithm. Um, I forget, uh, <laughs> genetic algorithm. I think it is called genetic algorithm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it comes with, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, I, I, I don't want to oversimplify it though. And I, I feel I've been speaking for very long. <laughs> All good, man. No, appreciate it. Uh, Amar, you said you're uh, uh, been into explainable AI uh, recently. Any, any input here? Uh, hello, everyone. So, um, no, actually, I'm learning about it. I'm, uh, I'm still like in my early ages of it. Uh, I, I like it uh, because you know it's uh, it's the maturity of this domain 
uh, this is what makes our domain this is what will make our domain like uh, mature and like uh, like like uh, confident this will increase the confidence in our domain for example i was working with a company uh, here and uh, they are a client of my company so they do uh, they do machines for x-ray they called ezaute uh, it's like a world leading x-ray company so they have these x-ray for like a pregnant woman to see the baby it's called uh, uh, like echoes or something so um, they had a problem. We solved the problem using like autoencoder and something. But uh, they wanted before like accepting the, the the outcome from our side, a full explainable uh, like report, like why does it perform, how it is performing, and it is like it's independent from the human side because it is all machine related. It's not affecting the humans at all in in a sense. So the, the like the goal is to make sure that this like the sound that is uh, like the doctor holds in in his hand is actually working well without ha having the help of a technician. So we tried like we applied something and uh, it worked, but they wanted a full report on explainability. Uh, they they asked us like uh, clearly that they want a non-professional to understand how this is working. And you know it's it's a really hard task, and I've been working on it like for the past month uh, after solving the problem. You know, so it's a it's a big thing for me. So I'm reading the book. I'm taking some inspiration. I'm not reading like every word. I'm not applying the codes. I'm just taking like inspiration on how to do that. Uh, I actually have a question and uh, another project where we are like currently blocked. If it's okay. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so uh, imagine you have uh, a motors. Uh, like uh, any any type of like small motors that are being manufactured, and when you when you want to test them, uh, they are like these experts who listens to the like performance of the model. So they just turn it on, listen to it, and if it's okay, it passes. If it's not, it goes into further inspection. So uh, they had a problem; they wanted to automate that. So we took like recordings of the motors, like many many good ones, and like a few like anomal ones, let me say. And uh, so we have like 40,000 recordings of five seconds of uh, good working motors and like 15 or like to those that, that have anomalies. So we try to do the following thing, maybe to build an autoencoder that takes the input, which is the MEL spectrogram, which is the visual representation of the audio file and like, like uh, tear it down into a latent vector in the middle of the autoencoder and then build it back up. So it will learn only the good aspect of a working model. So whenever a, a working motor, so whenever a new anomal uh, uh, like a recording comes in, it should not be able to build it again because it only knows how to build good ones. So the thing is we do similarity between the input and the output. And if the similarity is high, if they look like very much the same, uh, it would be a good one. If it's not, then this would be a anomal uh, one. So we are blocked. It's it's not. It's simply not working. We tried many many approaches. It's not working. That, that, that's it. That's uh, like it's been like uh, two weeks since we're trying on this, and uh, it, it it just doesn't work. You know, uh, we have a okay. That, that's important. We have a restriction over the memory and the deployment uh, because because the deployment thing is like edge deployment, deployment. they have their own ASIC design of their boards and they want to integrate it within it.
So yeah, that's it. Any insights? Sorry, I spoke too too much, but yeah, that sounds like a very very tough problem uh, that I've never worked on, so I have no clue where to even start with that. Any uh, deep learning experts here who specialize in this type of problem? Space? Not necessarily deep deep learning. It's uh, just an approach. Maybe other things might work. That would be even great better. Yeah. Because uh, in yeah. our situation, we converted the audio file into an image using MAL spectrogram. Uh, this was the main approach. But if there's uh, like maybe other ideas using the uh, uh, using the uh, audio file directly, that would be great. Mark, go for it. Yeah. So I have no expertise for for this. I just more so have a clarifying question. Is because um, what you're sounding sounds very complex. Um, what's like the simplest thing you've tried so far? And then how's that compared to what your current approach is? So the simplest thing was done by like the R&D team in our company. They tried like RBF. They extracted features out of the, uh, because you know, RBF is deployable on their edge, ASIC design. They have like something called neuromorphic, uh, like parts that has like something I don't understand it very well, but they have like a hardware that is specific for RBF that works very well for RBF. So uh, they tried uh, to extract features uh, from the audio. Yeah, from the audio file itself. I'm, I'm not sure how they did it. And they done RBF over that. It worked to some extent, but it was not a very confident uh, solution. Mikigo. Um, I just, yeah, I just want to point out that um, NVIDIA actually has some pretty good um, like technical blogs and talks on specifically conversational or speech AI pipelines. So it's worth checking it out. Some of it does tend to be a little bit more focused on their platform Riva, but um, if you kind of sort of skate around it, um, some of the resources there are pretty good. Um, I posted a link to NVIDIA stuff. Um, and then the other question I had was, I guess I'm not getting a clear understanding of sort of what are the, what are the bottlenecks or the problems you're trying to solve for? Is it, um, is it performance? Is it um, the structure design? Is no, it no, they, they, they actually manufacture the motors. So they have like this pipeline of manufacturing motors. And for the higher end models, they do like human inspection on every produced motor. Mm. And, and they are trying to automate this, uh, this human role in here where a person is usually sitting next to the motors and listening to them. Mm -hmm. So if, if they sound fine, they're okay for shipment. If they are not, they are like went back to further inspection. Yeah, yeah, but what I'm saying is that like um, in the current summary of, of the project where you're stopped at right now, is the problem that, um, so is the problem that you've tried architectures out there in papers and they haven't worked? Or is it like a computational challenge where it's like, you know, the, the design, the system architecture could work, but you just don't have enough compute power or is it you're outputting a pipeline that's doing yeah. terribly? So um, for the- There's like three, you know, for each problem, there's yeah. a different solve, right? Yeah, so, so actually they are, we have like both of the problems. When we enlarge the model, it works. It is able to learn uh, the exact uh, like good motors, but this is, we're talking about like very large model. 
And when we like try to make it a bit smaller, when we like do some higher parameters, like it, it just doesn't work in, within the restrictions we have. Gotcha. Um, I mean, yeah, Kostop has his hand up and since he does all the stuff with like robotics, um, I, I would say like, cause if it's a computational, yeah, <laughs> don't give that look like you do. Um, working robotics. Cause it, if it's a computational thing, a lot of times it's like, uh, maybe it could be just throw more money at it to get more like compute or GPUs or, or what have you. But, um, if it's like not that, then yeah. Thanks. Do you want to take a stab at it, please? Uh, I mean, well, the two things that pop to mind now, I'm not an audio expert by any wild measure, but uh, just a question. Is there a reason you're specifically using um, MEL frequencies? Because there's no reason at all. Lee... But yeah, like that, in, in, in the state of the art, this is what it seems like to be the best representation of audio, like a human listened audio file, how the humans listen to it in image. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like that, that, that might be where the where part of the bias is, right? Is because when you're talking about male frequencies, you're talking about the like nonlinearity of human perception being scaled into the into the frequency range, right? But yeah. does a computer see it the same way, right? Like we, we see, so for example, there's a fundamental difference between how uh, humans perceive objects and how deep learning networks perceive objects, right? We use shapes, deep learning objects typically mm -hmm. use textures, right? Um, yeah. So there, there might be a like a fundamental perception difference there. So I don't uh, know whether staying away from male frequencies might. I, I actually I actually like uh, like canceled this option because somehow mm. it is visual the, the the differences when I put in front of me two examples one working motor and one that's not working I can know which one is the one that is good and which one is the one that's bad you know so that so there are definitely like visual markers in the male spectrum there. yes but maybe I am biased because I I, I designed the male algorithm I I did the whole thing. Uh, I asked one mm. of the the company employees to come and look, you know, look at them. Uh, just give me a a a burst like idea which one is the bad one, and uh, he figured out which one is the bad one. Mm. You know, so yeah, that, that it's it's really hard to say. Like, I mean, I'm definitely not an audio expert by any measure, but that was just my open question, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the other side of it is like when you're testing motors, right? Uh, for for quality. Uh, are you able to take a different approach and use something like a miniature dynamometer or something um, to run the motor against? So uh, their restriction is that we don't touch the, the production pipeline. We don't add anything to it. There's already, uh, like we had some discussions before even allowing to include like uh, recordings, like uh, microphones next to the motors mm -hmm. that are being tested. Uh, so uh, they don't want us to touch anything. We cannot put like an accelerometer over the uh, the wheel that is dragging the, the motor along the pipeline. You know, they don't accept anything. But they want it to be like an outsider solution mm. with so, the memory and power computational power restrictions. Let's hear from Serge on this, but before we get there, I'm curious, and Ben, if you have any input on this, love to hear from you. But does it have to be encoded as either audio or video? Can't you measure, like, I don't know what scale audio comes in, megahertz or whatever. But 
uh, like you just imagine having like a, a, a row vector that samples audio at every given, you know, let's just say 0. 0.005 seconds. And you just pull like some statistic of that audio value. So you have a row vector that each element of that row vector is sampled at 0. 0.005 seconds and it gets like the maximum hertz or whatever. I don't know. I'm just making it up and use that as. The, I think the difference, yeah. the difference there, I think, might be that the what they're perceiving when they're listening to it is in the spectral domain and not in the time domain. Yeah. Right. So trying to That's pattern match in the time domain doesn't oh. quite line up the same way. Ah, uh, I see. Sure. So then Ben, if you have any input. It's been a while since I worked with audio data, but um, something that worked the last time I worked with audio data was uh, there's this library called Librosa, which you probably used before, yeah. but you can, I would pre-process the data, pre-process the audio before the mail spectrogram. There might be something you can do to make, I did make the sounds pop more. Okay. You did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, other thing. There's this like FFT thing, you like the fast Fourier transform. Uh, it gives you a number of channels, which is somehow correlated to the number of features, you know? Uh, so it's called bins. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. So you, you, you choose how many bins you want, and those will be your features. I tried to hyperparameter this, like I, I even automated it. And uh, uh, when you choose a large number of bins, it gets more explainable by the eye, but you, you get a larger image so it needs more computational power okay and you said you said speaking about computational power that you you said you needed a very big model and it would work okay yep. which and, and, and to me suggest way. okay it suggests that maybe maybe that's i mean it, to think that that's the only way to solve it but have you thought of making a big model and then quantizing it you know. I did. I tried uh, int, uh, int8 quantization, uh, uh, like training aware quantization, and maybe over, like again post-training quantization. Uh, both didn't like get very helpful uh, because we are talking about an ASIC design. Yeah, and then there's there's another thing I thought of, and it is, I mean, perhaps Mel spectrogram does not capture it because it's designed for human ears, yeah. and and uh, and uh, and perhaps there's a lot of sounds that are not going to be represented there. And so maybe maybe you find another way of actually visualizing it. It could still be an image, but I I don't know what that would be because I haven't but I, I, I would look thought, I would look for papers that describe that kind of sound and I maybe how they dealt with that. I thought of a backward to to double check this what you're saying. I did an inverse mouse spectrogram. So I reversed the mouse spectrogram into audio and then compared mm -hmm. both. It's quite good. Okay. You know, and, and, a, and a very high degree. Like, so it is representing well what I'm hearing, but it's not like uh, at the end, like we could just agree that this is a computational power restriction. And that's, mm -hmm. that's that, you know? Yeah. Well, Greg probably knows the answer to that. So I'll, I'll let him. <laughs> Go on. Oh, I just had a quick question for Amar. Maybe you said it before. Is that when you said you're comparing the big model with the small model that you could see which one is failing? Is how are you able to see 
which one is failing? Are you doing a comparison with, you know, how he's processing the input data, transforming it and making an inference or how are you able to see the difference between the two exactly? No, actually, actually I, 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 I wasn't very clear. Maybe I, I like uh, compared uh, two uh, Maldor presentations, uh, one for a working model recording, working motor recording and one for an, like, like a normal motor recording. So I compared both images as like data, data inputs. And I was able to see the differences. Where is it failing for the like anomal one? Okay. Can I ask, um, what exactly are you, when you look at the, like the Mel spectrogram side by side, what do you visually see is like the marker for, hey, this is a good motor, this is a bad motor? Like, is it like a, a dominant spec, uh, dominant frequency or are you seeing like harmonic patterns or like, what are you seeing that- Actually, the harmonic patterns are the scary ones because hmm. when, when a motor stucks, it keeps generating the same level of frequency. So in the Melder presentation, I'm gonna see like a same color for a like long term of time. But when a motor keeps running, when it's still, when it is like non-functional, you could also not see a harmony, but you would see the, like, uh, I don't know the English term of it. It's like the, you know, the sinusoidal uh, representation like the, with the like high peaks. Yeah, the, the oscillations. Okay. And those oscillations in so some time are the normal thing when the motor is turning on and off. Okay. Yeah. Um, this one's definitely a, a, a tough one. It's like, it sounds like a, a, a weird crossover on your, you're kind of reaching the limits on what computationally you can pull out of the spectrum. Right. Um, yep. yeah. Which is why like, th this is where, this is when I start suggesting, okay, the, the, the signal that's driving the motor, do you have access to that signal? No, nope. right? not at all. Hmm. Because there could be information there, like like, like some EMF, feedback. Yeah, exactly. Back EMF feedback, mm -hmm. anything mm -hmm. like that that might be able to give you something. Yeah, this is. This sounds yeah, like we could work. Yeah, I I I actually uh, like ask them if it's possible to fix an accelerometer, like like below the wheels that uh, like uh, that uh, drives the the motor to the testing place, and they said like this is a big no, no way we would uh, like add anything to our existing uh, like uh, pipeline. That, that, that to me is always an interesting, like an interesting requirement, right? Where when, when, when you're kind of given a challenge to do something with nothing, right? Uh, like mm. even if it's something as simple as like a, uh, like a couple of lasers and a, and a, and a slip angle sensor kind of thing, that's probably enough to tell you like the, the rate of movement of the, of the motor itself without being contact without needing yeah. any kind of contact. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's it, always a challenge. Just, just so you know, uh, the first discussion was about uh, fixing a, a camera over the motor. That mm. was their proposition, you know, using the camera, we want to know if it's working or not, you know? <laughs> so uh, we drove them towards a recording and that was a tough one. So uh, like adding anything else would be a big problem for them. Could you look um, at like, 
magnetometry. Sorry, I'm geeking out here, but could you look at magnetometry and like, because naturally, like, I'm assuming these are like electric motors, right? Um, yep. You'd, you would see some kind of magnetic field change based on the speed, right? Yep. Makes sense. That's a Let's hear interesting from, idea. Let's hear from, from Ben on this. And then after Ben, Greg. Guys, I'm really sorry. I took uh, lots of time for this. Oh, you, you're okay. Um, in another life, I used to do a lot of audio a long time ago. Uh, at IRV, we built out automatic speech recognition systems in-house. So these are deep speech too. We had to train these models for over a month on tens of thousands of hours of audio. And so one of the questions I have for you is uh, how much, how big is your training set? So how many unique spectrograms do you have? Is it uh, thousands? 40,000. 40,000, okay. Oh. Um, and then are you doing 8-bit depth on your spectrogram images or are you doing the full 16-bit or what, when you um, send it into your model? Did, I, I you... tried both. Okay. Is there any other data in addition to the audio that you could add uh, to it? Nothing. nothing. Okay. Uh, what time horizon are you using? Well, uh, uh, like uh, five seconds. And have you did you experiment with that doing longer time? Uh, so, so, so usually the the uh, the like the person who's working there needs two seconds to recognize. Okay. And you okay, said so, so. So the human needs two seconds to hear it to recognize. Yeah. What's the human accuracy? Uh, okay, so we tried this. It's uh, it's very hard to have a, a deficient motor comes out. So we faked it. We added some like motors that they know that doesn't work very well. Uh, so it was 100% of uh, human level performance over five of their employees. Who does this job, you know? Okay. Um, but you said earlier that you felt like you could tell on the spectrogram. Yeah. I'm not sure because I'm probably biased, uh, but this is probably the case, yeah. And when you train your model on the 40,000 images, what what model are you using? How long are you training for? Um, I try to have like many uh, architectures. Uh, the, like the, the last thing I did, you know, I'm using autoencoder. So a couple of convolutions and then a latent vector. So I take like big convolution, then a smaller, smaller, smaller to a latent vector. And then I rebuild the image again to obtain a new image. So I compare both images with like some similarity of functions. Uh, that's not the problem here. Uh, I, I, I know that the similarity might be something confusing to compute, but that's not the problem. But I, I, I compare the similarity between both. And if the similarity is high, this is OK. Uh, this is an anomal uh, motor, and if it's uh, not high, then this is a normal one. Okay. Um, we we could take this discussion offline, but one of the things we could do, if you were open to it, is we do auto audio processing pipelines at DataRobot, where we would take the spectrograms and run them through. The thing that you get is we do the unsupervised clustering for you, and then we do okay. the GradCam visualizations for you. You can obviously do that yourself, but that might be a way for you to troubleshoot. Maybe. 40,000 images is a lot for the spectrogram and maybe there's some quality issues. Maybe there's something else in the data that could come out. So we, we could talk offline where yeah, maybe we, we run the data. I, I'm happy to run it through our platform and see if it, if it gets different results, then we can dive into the modeling approach to understand what we did. Um, 
but hopefully we can get to the bottom of it because it seems like if you can see that if you can tell in the spectrogram that should be a, a huge giveaway that like yeah. this this should work very well there's no yeah. reason this shouldn't be working so yeah uh if you don't mind send me an email ben at datarobot.com and sure. we can i, I just connected it. with you on linkedin and I do awesome that. okay thank you very much Ben. appreciate that greg go for it so i have a silly question have you tried like different types of models like a time series because when i'm hearing like motor failures time series is very especially motor vibration there are a lot of signals you know like a motor vibrates depending on the oscillation over time you can create time series models that can give you more powerful signals for future failures versus you know analyzing images i don't know if you've tried different approaches yeah. to see so you know so in the recordings I have, you know, sometimes the human needs to turn on and off the motor like multiple times in order to like to double check to make sure that's working. So, so like this flow of turning the motor on and turning the motor off should exist in different places of the spectrogram. Okay, uh, this is the first thing. The second thing is that um, we can we don't have anything other than the recordings. Okay, Th that's it. So we are talking about how would we like symbolize our recordings into, into numbers, into whatever type of data. So when we're talking time series, what type of time series? Is it like, like just time dependent frequency? It doesn't represent what we hear. You know, so, so, yeah. so the discussion of is how to represent this audio file in a human interpretable way yes. in order to digest it. Yeah. So uh, the, the R&D team in the company actually tried to extract features, as I said before, and it worked plus or minus fine. But um, yeah, that's that. Yeah, because I was wondering, you know, maybe as a data collection piece or data annotation, you could use the human to kind of like identify that noise um, and then use that data to train the model, right? So put it on a time series. So every time they listen to it, inside of that two second window and pinpoint that noise and you collect enough of that. Um, and then if you put it over time, you'll see some patterns maybe. Um, if you perform that check for multiple, you know, motors over time, you'll have enough data for uh, some sort of time series, um, uh, maybe, you know, prediction. Of so, so, so here you're talking about like classifying predictions, uh, pl classifying anomalies. For example, using this humans. Motor... Ah, okay, yeah. Using uh, humans over time. So the, that the problem you... is that we are trying to be a problem agnostic. We just want to identify the good ones because there are many, many reasons why the motor won't be running okay. For example, if one of the screws isn't like tied well, it will like start vibrating, See making more. this weird noise, yeah. you know, and like many, many others, re other reasons. It has uh, like 2,100 parts in the, in the whole motor. Yes. So there are like various reasons why it might not work. But yet and a human is capable of knowing that particular noise that says it's failing, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is, yeah. you know, or, or do you have enough data that showcases that, you know, the human only, is capable of listening to any kind 15, of noise? Only 15 defected uh, examples. Yeah. Because that, that's the other approach I would take, right? Which is 
okay, let's let's try a different type of model, but over time you need to collect that data from yeah. humans and then use that as a training. So that's all I have. Thanks. Excellent question, excellent discussion. I'm like, thank you so much. Hopefully uh, there's something in there that was able to help you. Uh, at the very least, you got, you got Ben's in there. So hopefully Ben can get you guys pointing in the right direction. Um, look, let's go ahead and wrap this episode up. Thank you guys so much for being here. Appreciate y'all hanging out for this second anniversary party for the Artist Data Science Podcast. They have two years, two years of podcasting. Um, so yeah, check out the episode that was released today, Natalie Nixon. Uh, I was on Daliana's podcast just recently, the Data Scientist Show. So check that out. Um, bunch of other cool stuff coming in the next few weeks. Stay tuned. Um, just finished my first week at Pachyderm, so that was cool. Like came from the fire hose, it was awesome. Uh, hopefully you guys will see me doing some more awesome stuff from there. Uh, ben. Thank you so much for the uh, compliments to the great beard. You know what? I'm starting to rock it, man. I've been, I've been hiding behind this dyed beard for far too long. It's time to just embrace it. It's looks good. It. Thank you, man. Looks, Thank you. Yeah, looks good, man. I do have a quick question for you, Pri. Yeah, yeah. What is that avocado for in your LinkedIn profile name? Yeah, yeah. So that, so I'm, I'm in DevRel now, right? So, you know, I'm still in data science, still in machine learning, but my role isn't a data scientist or machine learning engineer. I enable machine learning engineers and data scientists. So the avocado is the universal symbol for developer advocates, right? So you can see here, developer advocates. Uh, this is, uh, the, we're avocados because we're the good kind of fact in our organization. Uh, that's, that's kind of the, the philosophy behind that. So you'll see a lot of people on Twitter who are developer advocates or in developer relations also have that avocado thing. So I'm embracing that since that is the direction I'm taking my career um, because it is one hell of a career path to go. One day I will be just like Ben. Um, so Appreciate you for satisfying my curiosity. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, I'll probably be uh, creating more content about what DevRel is, what DevRel is all about. So if that sounds uh, like a interesting career path to you. I kind of described it at the beginning of this hour. Um, but yeah, you'll be hearing me talk more and more about that. I feel like developer relations, if you are an open source platform, if you're a startup that develops tooling for data scientists or machine learning engineers, uh, you've got to hire somebody in DevRel. Or you've got to have a fully thought out DevRel function because uh, you have spread the word and the message about, about product, right? And traditional marketing doesn't really seem to work with these type of products and this type of persona. And that's where developer relations comes in. Um, but yeah, I'll be putting more and more content out about that uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, guys, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you guys joining me on the second birthday of the podcast. Um, got some awesome stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, obviously, I'll be at ODSC in Boston April 19th. Hopefully, you're there uh, 19th to the 21st. I'll be kicking it at the Pachyderm um, table. So come through. We got stickers and socks for you. And um, in terms of people taking over the, the, the podcast, Sadie St. Lawrence is supposed to take over the podcast in a couple of weeks. So definitely check that out. Um, I think, Nikiko, you might be taking over. Uh, is that the end of the month or beginning of next month at some point? Yeah, it is coming up. The 22nd. The 22nd, that's right. Uh, so I'm excited for that. Um, so you guys, thank you so much. Appreciate you being here. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big for your planet?